The Green Rush is real. From lawmakers and investment bankers to CEOs and investors, we'll look at how people are transforming cannabis from the shadows of the black market into a cash crop that draws in cannapreneurs from Hollywood to Wall Street. Here to help you navigate the business of cannabis, please welcome Lewis Goldberg and Ann Donahoe. Brought to you by KCSA Strategic Communications. Welcome to The Green Rush. I'm Ann Donahoe with my co-host, Lewis Goldberg. And today we have the honor of speaking to one of the true pioneers in the industry, Chris Crane from Forefront, which is a leading investment and management firm in the cannabis sector. In addition to their advising business, they've developed a national platform that consists of a multi-state footprint, including its mission-branded retail operations. Chris, um, in addition to being overall awesome, is one of the very few people who can say they've been in the legal cannabis industry for nearly 20 years. While in college at American University, Chris helped lead the chapter of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORML. From there, NORML went ahead and hired him out of college, and then he was off and running. He eventually became the Associate Director of NORML from 2000 to 2005, and Executive Director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy for, from 2006 to 2009. Prior to forming Forefront, Chris also served as the Director of Client Services for Canopy, which was a pioneer in developing best practices within the medical cannabis space. He serves on the National Cannabis Industry Association Board of Directors, as well as the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association Board, which is the you largest nonprofit association. You know you're fumbling. You're and fumbling because I didn't say hostess with the mostess. I'm fumbling because there's so much cred to add to, to, add to Chris. So, Sorry. So the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association Board, which is the largest nonprofit association in the state dedicated to the legal cannabis industry. Chris, welcome to the Green Rush. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Did I get any part of your bio wrong or do we need to no, add anything? No. Okay. You got it all right. I could I could add, but uh, but but I think I think that's plenty. Okay. Actually when she when she was writing it, it was like a scroll unrolling. <laughs> like it was just kept flowing and flowing and flowing. Chris is a Gemini, he likes long walks on the beach now. Um, <laughs> so tell us I've given kind of the overall about forefront, but it's really changed since you founded it in 2011. Can you tell us about the evolution of the company? Sure. So we started as a consulting business called Forefront Advisors, still around. Um, and in our earlier days, uh, we focused exclusively on working with clients where we would take them through the you know, very complex process of navigating uh, the licensing process to uh, to get a license to operate a cultivation or, or, or uh, cultivation facility, processing facility, dispensary uh, in these highly competitive application processes in states across the country. Uh, and then we would provide them with a operating model uh, for their retail dispensary. So that would include the operational policies and procedures, um, all their operating protocols, job aids. Uh, we would help them hire their management team and we would take them through a training program to train them on how to operate a high level dispensary. Um, and that, that business, uh, we operated exclusively uh, on the consulting side until about mid 2015. Um, and in 2015, we launched uh, a company called Mission Partners. Uh, we also launched a parent company called Forefront Ventures. So all of our companies are underneath the same, uh, owned by the same common parent. Um, and at Mission Partners, uh, we acquire and operate uh, these licenses ourselves. So Mission is our uh, retail dispensary brand. Our first dispensary that we operate uh, opened last July in Chicago. Uh, our first cultivation facility opened a few months later just outside of Chicago. Uh, and we are actively in the process of building out uh, Mission branded dispensaries and cultivation facilities in 
Massachusetts, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, all of which will be rolling out uh, between this spring and this fall. Uh, and we also are waiting to hear back from a few other states as well where we're pursuing licenses, uh, places like Arkansas, Ohio, Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, and a few others on the way soon. So you've changed your, your model from being a consultant to an owner and operator. And now as, as uh, an operator with your, you know, with your company's credibility <clears throat> and, and capital on the line, how do you decide where to target states or even uh, countries to, to set up mission operations? Sure. And as you mentioned, we, we do both. So we, we didn't just transition from doing consulting to operating. We still have a consulting business. So we work on both sides. Um, as far as where we decide to target, uh, we tend to focus on new markets. Um, so, you know, we use the skills that we've um, we've honed over the past you know, almost decade now at writing competitive license applications to go out and win applications anytime there's a new market. Uh, we tend to focus more on uh, states that have competitive application processes on states that have uh, limited, a li more limited number of overall licenses. Um, so we're less interested in places like California, Oregon, uh, Colorado, where there's a, a sort of an unlimited number of licenses across all license classes, where there is a ton of competition and the markets get really saturated. Um, we're more focused typically on states in the eastern part of the country where the states limit the overall number of licenses, where there's room in the markets to grow. Um, so where you may be starting as a medical market that could expand, that could then expand into adult use. Um, so we like to see markets where the licenses have inherent value because they're somewhat more limited, they're more scarce, um, and where there's room for that value to grow as the program grows and as you know adult use comes down the road. Um, and then we also, as you mentioned, internationally, we have looked at some international projects. Uh, we just obtained our first international licenses uh, in Colombia over the past month or so. Um, so we are licensed to cultivate, uh, extract and export uh, out of Colombia, although we haven't started building anything here there yet. We, ju we just obtained those licenses. So... Um we're going to spend a lot of the time talking about what you're doing today with Forefront and tomorrow, but let's let's do a flashback if we could have some of that you know uh, special effects where it goes and take you back in time <laughs> to when you were at normal and the, and and running uh, the SSDP. Um, you once said that the repeal of marijuana laws is is our anti-war movement. Do you still feel this way? <laughs> um, I, I do, although. Um... Uh, you know, I, I, we used to say that a lot in the early days at SSDP. Uh, this was, you know, 1998 to 2001 or so. In fact, I remember getting up at a normal conference in like, I think it was April of 2000, April, April, May, June, somewhere in that, uh, somewhere in spring of 2001, and giving this impassioned speech about how, uh, you know, this the, that the drug war is our generation's anti-war movement. And, and this was really meant to the student generation at that time. Um, and then a few months later, 9-11 happened and we actually had real wars and a real anti-war movement. So the rhetoric changed a little bit um, after that. You know, before that, this really was sort of the, 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 the biggest war that my generation when I was in college was fighting against. Um, and that, that changed a bit through the Bush years. Um, it actually became more difficult for us to recruit folks into the drug policy reform movement uh, for you know, the few years after 9-11 understandably, because there was a real anti-war movement for students to join for the first time, you know, really since the Vietnam War. Um, but, you know, as that, you know, as that has faded away somewhat, um, I, I think this is, you know, I, I think this is sort of reemerged as the as sort of the anti-war movement for this generation. Um, and we've seen it. I was actually just down 
uh, at SSDP's 20th anniversary conference uh, this past weekend in Baltimore. Uh, there was you know four to five hundred people there. Uh, SSDP now has uh, chapters on uh, on over 300 campuses across the U.S. We have affiliate networks in something like 16 countries. Um, it's actually grown to be the largest. Uh, we believe the largest student organization, certainly the largest single issue student organization in the United States. Um, so, you know, whether or not it's this generation's anti-war movement, um, it, it has really sort of become this generation's uh, uh, movement, uh, you know, movement in general of, of, of choice. I have a bit of a follow up. Um, so, you know, normal was always the flag bearer for for the the legalization movement and, and with it gaining so much steam and with, you know, the vast majority of the country not only supporting it, but now having access um, to either medicinal or adult use cannabis. Is it still relevant today? Uh, you know, what? I actually think in, in many ways, normal is more relevant today um, or needs to be more relevant today uh, than it ever has been. Um, and, you know, the reason I say that is normal is has always been different than the other marijuana and, and drug policy reform organizations. And this isn't meant as a knock on you know, the marijuana policy project and the drug policy alliance, who I think are doing incredibly important work. I mean, we would not have legal marijuana in most of the states that we have it today, if not for you know, particularly the marijuana policy project and um, to a large degree, the drug policy alliance as well. They've kind of, you know, divvied up states and, and they've been the ones that have been able to attract you know, big lobbying dollars. They've been able to attract, you know, uh, uh, high net worth donors um, to help fund this th these causes. Uh, but, you know, normal's in a unique position in that normal has always been a consumer advocacy organization. Right? Normal was founded by Keith Strop in 1970, coming out of uh, the Ralph Nader, you know, unsafe at any speed uh, consumer advocacy um, culture that really sprung up in the late 60s. And Keith saw the need for a marijuana uh, consumer advocacy group. Um, and I think as we're now moving into the era of legalization, where we're not just fighting about should marijuana be legal or not, there really does need to be an organization out there that's fighting for the interests of marijuana consumers and not necessarily for the interests of marijuana uh, businesses and marijuana companies. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with Chris Crane from Forefront. More Green Rush coming up after we roll through our sponsors. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Himping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Strainwise Consulting is the most sought-after consulting company for cannabis business applications and management contracts. We consulted on the first recreational license in the world and have had an over 95% success rate on applications submitted. The industry is growing at such an exponential rate that building a powerful and lasting cannabis business is a number one priority. Here's Strainwise's Sean Eubanks. In our first five years, we branded and supported nine medical and recreational marijuana dispensaries and a 
approximately 160,000 square feet of sophisticated and efficient product cultivation. Strainwise Consulting has the experience and expertise to guide you through the process. Introducing Blue Moon CBD, straight from the bluegrass of Kentucky. With our special nano emulsion process, you'll not only get the best CBD available, you'll get more of it. Not all CBD is the same. It's your body. It's your choice. Get relief from inflammation, anxiety, and stress. Go to www.bluemoonhemp.com and use code HEMP420 for a 20% discount on your order. Balance your body. Balance your life. Make it Blue Moon CBD. Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines, Dave Inman welcomes you to the state of cannabis. Tuesdays on demand, only on CannabisRadio.com. Banking and Bud, understanding the business of cannabis. Welcome back to The Green Rush, only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back. Thanks for listening to The Green Rush. We are talking with Chris Crane, who is the co-founder and president of Forefront. Um, Chris, you were one of the early cannapreneurs. Hold um, on a second. Hold on a second. Yeah? Yeah, the fire truck is like way too loud in the... <laughs> Fucking New York. I miss it. <laughs> You're welcome back anytime. It's been 20 years. Uh, I would love to one of these days. I had a helicopter Wait, is it 20 hovering. 20 years since you've been here or 20 oh, years wow. since you've lived here? Since I lived there. I grew, I grew up oh. in the city, but I left I left when I was 18 for college 20 years ago. Where did you grow up? Uh, originally Rockaway Beach, uh, and then we moved to the Upper West Side when I was nine. So half my childhood in both places. Oh, nice. Okay. We are, we, we are good. Go ahead, Ann. So, Chris, you are one of the early canopreneurs making the jump from advocacy. Yeah. So, Chris, you were one of the early canopreneurs making the jump from advocacy to commerce in 2009. What was it like back then as compared to now? Oh, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not, you can barely compare uh, uh, 2009 to today. I mean, in 2009, there were no legal regulated markets uh, at the state level, at least. The only the only legally regulated markets in 2009, early 2009, at least, uh, were I believe um, it was it was it was like Oakland, California, Berkeley, West Hollywood, Sebastopol, and there might have been a couple more around California that were licensing retail dispensaries at the city level. There was no state in the country at that point that was licensing um, that was licensing these businesses at the state level. The first to really do that was Colorado, um, which happened in 2009 in response to the election of President Obama and Obama coming out and saying that it was not going to be a priority for his Justice Department to go after uh, businesses in these states. And Colorado became the first state then to, to issue statewide licensing. Um, so, I mean, at that point, Colorado, Colorado's marijuana industry like, wasn't even a thing. Uh, <laughs> it was, the, you know, the, the, the epicenter of uh, marijuana commerce was in the Bay Area of California and to a lesser degree in Los Angeles, although that was a Los Angeles was the true Wild West back then. Uh, so really, I mean, the, the cannabis industry was typified at that point by what we called throw open dispensaries, um, which was basically, you know, somebody would find a town, they would find some. Uh, they would find a storefront. They would spend as little as they could to build out a storefront dispensary. They would be selling at best gray market product because there was no 
there was no licensing for cultivation at that point. There were sort of caregiver collectives and whether they could actually do that out of a storefront was it was questionable whether that was actually legal. Um, and these storefronts would basically, you know, they would just sort of open up and then the towns would, you know, oftentimes the towns would come in and say, well, you can't do that. And we're going to shut you down. And the stores would have their lawyers send a letter to the town saying, yes, this is why we can do it. And the town would come back saying, no, you can't. And they kind of argue in court over the course of a few years. And you know, over that time, the store would have more than made back their initial investment and made a bunch of money. Eventually they'd get shut down. They close up shop, they go the next town over and it was wash, rinse, repeat. Um, like that was the cannabis industry. That was 90% of the cannabis industry at that point outside of those small handfuls, uh, handful of cities that, that decided that they would license. So what was the moment that it changed? I mean, what was the moment that it went from, from, you know, you're saying it went from black to gray and now it's gray to green. What, where was that moment? Was it when Colorado went adult use? Was it when, when Oakland, when Portland, um, or I'm sorry, Oregon went adult use? I mean, what, what was that moment that you think that there was that pivot? I don't think you can nail down a moment. Um, it was a, it, it, it was an evolution. Um, so I would say the, the first, the first important milestone in that evolution was the city of Oakland uh, becoming the first city in the country to adopt um, licensing regulations for dispensaries um, and actually have dispensaries be able to open with a license from a city and regulations that they had to follow. And was um, Jerry, Jerry Brown was mayor then? That was before he was governor, right? I think he was mayor at that point, actually. Yeah, that's right. So this was in 2000, I want to say 2007. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was the mayor. That happened. Yes, yeah, so I think I think that was when Jerry. And interestingly enough, Jerry Brown was not the biggest proponent of this at the time. He's he's always been a little bit. He's always been okay on the issue, but never a champion. Uh, he's always but, been much more of a different drug user than cannabis. I mean, there were stories from the 70s of him, you know, basically swimming in in something that's white. I mean, who wasn't <laughs> doing that in the 70s? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Me, you, and we were all too young. Well, I was. I was too. Uh, yes. So, uh, I would hope that wasn't happening in the 70s. I'm too young to remember. Yes. Um, That's not baby powder. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to leave my parents out of this one. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, so I think Oakland was sort of that first, that first point. I think, uh, you know, from there, it was really then candidate Obama making the statement that he wasn't going to interfere with state marijuana laws. And then... Uh, Eric Holder coming out saying, you know, saying that, yes, I'm reaffirming what the president said during the campaign. You know, that led to this massive explosion of businesses in Colorado and Colorado very quickly saying, well, wait a minute, we got to get our hands around this. We can't have a state full of throw open dispensaries. And Colorado became the first state to license medical businesses. So that was a big watershed moment. Um, and then, you know, and then probably fast forward to um, 2012 when Colorado became the first state. Um, to legalize Colorado and Washington became the first states to legalize for adult use. And, you know, uh, six months or so later, Colorado becoming the first state to actually roll out a fully legal adult use market. So, that, so that with, whole, sorry, go ahead, Ann. Go ahead. So I, so my question is the, with this tilt of, you know, all of a sudden there's new investment, there's new money, there's new people in this industry. Um, there seems to be a tension between the longtime advocates and the quote unquote suits in the industry. Um, can you talk about this and what it means for the for the movement itself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that, uh, that that I think a lot of us who are on both sides of this issue uh, kind of struggle with. I think a lot of people in the, in the movement, uh, on the movement side in particular, struggle with this. Um, you know, there has been some tension between the, you know, the activists, the folks who've been doing this for a long time in the nonprofit world, not making much money on it, 
and really doing it for the right reasons, right? Because they genuinely care and they care about you know, whatever it is, the social justice aspect of it, the racial justice aspect of it, the personal freedoms or the libertarian aspect of it. There's people that come from across the political spectrum for different reasons to this. Um, and now, you know, and now you have this whole new category of folks in cannabis that you know, came into it because they saw it as a business opportunity. And I think there's you know, certainly amongst the activists, there's definitely, uh, and not amongst everybody, but amongst uh, some of the activists, um, uh, some animosity towards the, you know, they perceive as these sort of Johnny come lately folks um, who haven't put in the time, um, who don't necessarily really get or care about the bigger picture issues, um, which I, I, I fully understand. And it, it's really frustrating to me when I see folks who get involved in this, and they're like, no, I'm just here to make money. I don't really care about the rest of it. It's like, well, you're making money off of something that other people are going to jail for. You've got a, you've got a, you've got a right. moral responsibility. Yeah, but a lot of those guys are, are, are they're, they're Johnny come lately's to whatever the hot industry is, right? I mean, you could have said exactly. the same thing about tech. You could say the same thing about crypto right now. Sure. But people weren't going to jail for, you know, starting websites. No, that's um, true. At the same time, those folks were making money. So there's, I think there's a, there's more of a moral imperative here for the industry folks to support this. Um, you know, th but all of that said, you know, I, I take a little bit of a different view of this, and clearly because I skirt that line, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm still involved in advocacy. I'm still on the board, you know, the board of trustees of SSDP, and I'm involved with issue advocacy organizations. I volunteer my time. I mean, I, I, it's important to me to keep a foot in that world to help keep me grounded. Um, but you know, part of what attracted me to the industry was I saw it opening up a whole new avenue for reform, and and I put that on sort of two tracks, right? One, it became clear to me in the late two thousands going through places like Harborside Health Center and Berkeley Patients Group and Peace and Medicine and some of these early pioneering dispensaries that if you can just demonstrate to the public that cannabis can be distributed in a way that is highly professional, that's socially responsible, that it changes the it changes the stereotype uh, uh, that people have of what this looks like, right? It changes the stereotype of a, of a cannabis distribution from a street, you know, a street level drug deal or the burnout stoners in, a, in, a, in their parents' basement to a beautiful retail store that even if you're not a consumer or patient, you're not going to be embarrassed to have it as part of your community. And I thought that was really important to help me move the overall issue forward. And we're going to change as many minds by doing this as we as we can with our advocacy work in D.C. The other piece of this is we're attracting people to this issue who we never would have gotten before. And I remember in the days when it was really hard to fight for dollars, to fight to raise money, um, to, 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 to advance this cause. And now we've got all of these people, all of these businesses who are in this, who, you know, some of them get it, some of them don't, but even most of the ones that don't really get it are still incentivized to support reform in some way because they needed to expand their market. Right. If you want to expand into a new state, it's not legal there. You need to support legalization in some way. And so it's attracted a lot more money to the movement. Not enough. Right. There are not people in the industry are not doing enough to support the movement, but it still has attracted leaps and bounds more money than we had just 10 years ago, because these, you know, these investors, these business owners have the financial self-interest to support reform because it will expand their market base. So that is a great point for us to take a quick break we are talking with chris crane one of the the real fathers of the both the advocacy of cannabis and also the commerce of cannabis uh, you're listening to the green rush and we'll be right back more green rush coming up after we roll through our sponsors 
Cannabis concentrates have been around for hundreds of centuries. In 19th century America, extracts mixed with other herbs were sold as a miracle cure. Now, Apex Supercritical has elevated the science of extraction into the 21st century. Apex Supercritical is the leader in CO2 extraction, which is the cleanest, safest, and purest way to extract plant oils. ROI in as little as three weeks. Our cost-effective systems are fully automated with an industry-leading three-year warranty. And if we don't have your system in stock, we can build one in as little as four weeks. Bringing CO2 extraction to the masses. Learn more at apeksupercritical.com. Four-week build excludes high production systems. Introducing 420 Cloud, ignited by MSIG, one of the fastest-growing social apps around. The only app you'll need for all things cannabis. Find the latest cannabis news, videos, and stories, ranging from business and tech to sports and medicine. Start your career in cannabis by seeking, identifying, and applying for jobs through our expansive listings. For businesses, 420cloud.com features a full-scale cross-channel network, monetizing high traffic for big data conversion and analytics. Download 420 Cloud now from the iTunes Store or Google Play. MSIG.com is a publicly listed company on the OTC. Symbol MCIG. At Alternative Vibes, our core values of quality, loyalty, respect, and honesty guides us in our mission to help families find peace and harmony through our products and services. Whether you are looking for a more natural way of living, shopping essential oils, topicals, and edibles, or searching for a path towards achieving your goals, we are your choice. Learn more about our complete line of natural products and solutions at AlternativeVibes.com. Bringing quality of living to life. AlternativeVibes.com. Our mission is to discuss extraction, processing, business practices, and lessons learned with the established experts of the extraction process on Mission Supercritical, a service of Apex Supercritical. Mondays on demand, only on CannabisRadio.com. Banking and Bud, understanding the business of cannabis. Welcome back to The Green Rush, only on CannabisRadio.com. So we're back, Chris. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, you straddle this line between commerce and advocacy, um, and you have a lot of, of unique experience um, on both sides of the, the board. Um, you talked earlier about this tension between the suits and, uh, you know, those who came out of the, the black and the gray market. For people who are just getting into the industry now – you know, if you could give them some advice, what would you want to say to um, the young entrepreneur who wants to get into cannabis? Uh, to the young entrepreneur who wants to get into cannabis? Well, it doesn't um, have to is, be <laughs> like young, young, but it has to be no, somebody no, who's course. new to the industry. Uh, this is not as easy as you think it is. Um, that's that, that would be my number one piece of advice. Like, however long you think this is going to take is going to take you a lot longer. However much money you think it's going to cost you to get involved, it's going to cost you two to three times as much. You know, however much you think you're going to make, you're going to make less. Um, that this is, this is a long-term industry. You know, there certainly are some people who are making a lot of money right now, but most of the people in, in the marijuana industry are still in startup mode. They may be in growth mode. They're not making a lot of money. There are major hurdles that folks in this industry face that that other industries don't face like access to banking and the 280e tax provision and you know host community agreements and you know towns trying to rake them over the coals for every dime they can get out of them before you even you know bring in a dollar in revenue um there just there's a lot of challenges and a lot of hurdles in this industry that i don't think people 
realize when they, you know, when they think about the, you know, the quote unquote green rush, right? They think that, hey, it's marijuana. Everybody loves marijuana. It's a plant. We'll grow it. We'll sell it. We'll make millions of dollars. <laughs> and this is a really hard business, right? Like some people will make millions of dollars. Hopefully most of us will. But if you're getting into this and you're thinking about this as a, you know, short term get rich quick uh, uh, scheme, this is the wrong industry for you. If you're interested in being involved in this for the longer term and you're willing to stick it out through these rough times, uh, the, you know, the, the amount of growth that we have ahead of us is massive and we're going to get there. But, but make sure that you're realistic about, uh, about what kind of industry you're getting into, how much this is going to cost and how long this is going to take. So let's talk about the Northeast. You live in Boston, uh, and in general, all eyes are on Massachusetts as the state goes adult use um, in July. Earlier this week, the Cannabis Control Commission released its regulations. Um, you seemed to receive to be lukewarm in in your reception of those regulations. Can you talk a little bit about that? And will will the state be up and running and and smoothly running by July? So I actually don't. I actually don't think I'm. I, I would say I'm lukewarm on the regulations. I'm pretty. I'm pretty uh, happy with the regulations on on the whole. Okay. Um, I stand corrected. Large, yeah. No. No. By and large. Well, there was a, there was an article that came out in the Boston Globe today where I had a fairly harsh quote. So I can't get where that was coming from. <laughs> um, but no. By and large, I actually think that the CCC has done a very good job uh, of this. I mean, it's taken longer than it needed to, but that's that's really more the legislature's fault than the commission. Um, you know, I think the rules overall are very progressive. I think they've created avenues for participation in the industry by uh, people of color and communities that have been disproportionately uh, impacted by marijuana prohibition. I think you know, Massachusetts is really now going to be seen as a leader uh, in diversity and equity in the industry, which I think is terrific. Um, uh, so they did a lot right. Um, where I think they, 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 they messed up, they, they adopted a standard on the energy side of things um, where they, the, any grows over 10,000 square feet uh, are limited to uh, 35 watts per square foot of light. Hold on a second. Um, so for people who don't have an idea of how big is that, is that is a 10,000 square foot grow big, small, average? Like how many big. plants are we talking uh, about? Well, 10,000 square feet, I mean, 10,000 square feet is kind of the border between a, a medium-sized grow and a large grow. Um, but we see grows in, you know, in Colorado and, uh, and you know, and, and California and out west that are in excess of 100,000 square feet. Um, so they, they can get pretty big. So th this rule is going to really impact the large scale cultivators, which I think is important in a market. Right? It's important that you have large scale cultivators who can grow at scale and provide the, you know, the decent quality. You're not not it's not going to be the connoisseur quality product, but decent quality product at a very low price. Uh, and that can only be done at a large scale. And what the commission did was, uh, as I mentioned, they limited those growers to 35 watts per square foot, which can only be done if you use LED lighting, right? Can't be done with your typical high pressure sodium lights that most growers use. The problem with that is that LED lights are five to seven times more expensive than HPS lights, which is already by far your most expensive part of your build out for a cultivation facility. Um, so, you know, these grows are going to go from, you know, somebody's trying to build, say, a 40,000 or 50,000 square foot grow. That's going to that's going to go from being a, you know, four to six million dollar project to, you know, potentially a 20 to 30 million dollar project. Well, and the I mean, lights aren't the lights aren't as good right now. I mean, that's LED the other lights, problem. Yeah, the that's quality the you don't get. Yeah, the quality is just not quite there with LEDs. It's getting better, but it's just not the same right now. So, you know, what's probably going to it's probably going to lead to is at least for the larger scale growers is going to be higher prices for lower quality products. 
Um, and I think that was an unfortunate, I, it was, I, I get what they were trying to do. I, they, they, they're trying to be a leader on greenhouse gas emissions. And I, and I commend them for thinking about this and for trying to do that. I don't think this was the right solution, unfortunately. I mean, what we should be doing is financially incentivizing these businesses um, to start greenhouse grows, which, which are much, you're gonna have much lower uh, greenhouse gas emissions in a greenhouse because you don't need the, you know, you, the light, right? The sun is free um, and, is, and is, you know, is a natural source of energy um, compared to an indoor grow. So we really should be encouraging folks to do more greenhouse production um, but I think saying for somebody who is going to start a large scale indoor grow, which is still how most of the industry grows, telling them they have to use LED lighting, I think is a real mistake. I have a question that's that's random. You just mentioned state incentives. Are there any states that incentivize grows or incentivize any aspect of a, of a cannabis business that you know of? Not that I know of off the top of my head, but it's got to be coming. I mean, we do that in, in virtually every other industry. Um, you know, we provide financial incentives, we provide tax breaks for, for businesses that are doing, you know, uh, doing things certain ways. I mean, I think, you know, saying that if you have a, a, an outdoor grow or a greenhouse grow, you know, we're going to cut the taxes on your wholesale mm. sales. Um, you know, that would be a major financial incentive for these businesses to move their production from large scale indoor to large scale greenhouse. There's ways to do it without saying if you're going to do an indoor grow, you have to do it in a way that's inefficient and is going to impact your quality. So let's let's pivot slightly. Stay in the Northeast. Um, you were recently added to the board of trustees to the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association. Congratulations! Thank um, you. And and you've been spending a lot of time in New Jersey. Um, and while you're not a garden stater, and both Anne and I are, what do you think is going to happen? Um, and more importantly, not only what's going to happen in New Jersey, but what will this mean for the rest of the Northeast? Uh, it's a great question. So you know, New Jersey is a very interesting program in that New Jersey has actually had a medical marijuana law on the books uh, since uh, 2001, I believe. Yes, and Chris uh, Christie designed it specifically to fuck everybody. Yes, well, he did. Well, so this is the interesting thing. So Chris Christie didn't design the law. Right? The law was actually signed. The law was actually signed or the bill was signed into law by Governor Corzine, Chris Christie's predecessor, on his last day in office. So basically, once once Chris Christie won election in November, the Democratic controlled legislature reconvened and passed a whole slew of bills that they knew that Corzine would sign on his way out that they knew Chris Christie would never would never sign. And this was one of them. So Chris, so Corzine signed a big host of bills on his last day of off in office, including this medical marijuana bill that Chris Christie then inherited the next day. Um, and Chris Christie is notoriously anti-cannabis, arguably the worst one of the worst politicians in the country on this issue. Um, and so he did everything that he could over the past eight years to make the program completely unworkable. And that's you know still today what you have. You've got something like 4,000 patients um, in a state that's, I believe it's 9 million people, um, to a massive state with virtually no patients. Uh, you've got five vertically integrated dispensaries that have all been just getting crushed in the market for years because there are no patients. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a terrible program. Um, now, thankfully, Governor Murphy... Uh, when he was running for, for governor, um, campaigned on marijuana legalization. And so since he's come into office, he's already issued an executive order, which he did in late January, which called on his health department uh, to study how to expand the medical program. And he actually provided some parameters for what he would like to see. So I think the first thing that we're going to see in New Jersey 
is within the next month or two, uh, the health department will likely promulgate new rules for their medical program. And I think what we're going to see, and, 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 and this is, you know, this is no surprise that most of this was in the executive order, um, is they're likely to expand the qualifying condition list to make it much easier for someone to become a patient. Um, they'll get rid of some of the restrictions around you know, maintaining your eligibility, eligibility as a patient. Right, right now, you have to see a doctor uh, four times a year, right, every three months in order to maintain your patient status. Uh, it's the only state in the country that does that. Um, I think they'll get rid of things like that. Uh, and then I think that they will likely expand the number of licenses. So they may allow the existing operators to open more stores, to ramp up capacity, so that the process can start quickly. I think simultaneously, um, they will start accepting applications for new businesses. So, you know, you're likely to see a big increase in the number of dispensaries, cultivation facilities, production facilities um, in the state over the course of the next uh, year to two years as they as they roll out these licenses and these businesses start to get open. So that'll be phase one. And then uh, phase two, hopefully, uh, the legislature will pass adult use legalization. Um, there's a lot of movement in the legislature to do that. Uh, the governor campaigned on it. Um, the, everybody's very hopeful that it'll get passed this year, this legislative session. Um, you know, I've been around the politics of this long enough to know that it's really hard to get one of these things passed on your first go around. Um, so even though the political will may be there, once you start getting into the sausage making and people start arguing over details of the bill, it's possible that this gets pushed out to next year. But I'm still hopeful that uh, that they can get it done this year. Um, and then, you know, that takes another year or so to implement. And so ideally, if things go well in Jersey, you'll have a ramped up medical program with a really with a really large patient base um, and uh, and a big infrastructure to serve the market demands uh, that will exist in a larger medical market. And that that infrastructure can then be converted over to form the basis of a real adult use industry in the state. Um, and if you look at where New Jersey's situated, right, you, I mean, New Jersey borders New York City and Philadelphia, right, two of the largest uh, uh, markets in uh, and two largest cities in the Northeast. Um, and I think that would provide that would that would put incredible pressure on politicians in states like New York and Pennsylvania to start looking at legalization because they're not going to like seeing all of that tax money and all of mm -hmm. that revenue flow across the borders. So what yeah, does this mean for, for, for you guys at Forefront? How involved are you going to be in New Jersey or are you going to kind of sit on the sidelines until you, uh, until a, a better regulatory environment, you know, appears? Well, there's nothing for us to do until a better regulatory environment. Appears, right? There's no licenses to apply <laughs> yeah. for today. Um, but you know, what we can do is what, you know, is what I like to do, um, you know, anytime a state's looking at this, particularly where we have some decent access in the state, and, is to you know help work with the government as much as I can to help them make sure that they get the parameters of the program right. And so that I think that's part of the reason why I was brought onto the board of the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association uh, is to you know help the NJCIA and and help work with uh, folks in the government uh, on on putting together what this program may look like. So that's really the most effective thing that we can do as a company right now. Um, is to is to make sure that they help get this right. And you know, from a, from a business standpoint, if we do a good job with it, and we're seen as you know responsible, uh, you know responsible and knowledgeable folks who have been helpful to the state, if that you know increases our chances of being able to participate in the legal market down the road, that's great. Um, but you know, as an old school activist myself, if in the end you know all that winds up happening is I've helped New Jersey in some way implement a better program, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that on a personal level. And I will say on a personal level, thank you. Because as somebody who lives in New Jersey, thank you. 
Um, I mean, look, there, there are so many patients in New Jersey, and I know some of these folks personally, um, who have been waiting for a really, really, really long time um, for this. And one of, one of the first, uh, just on a you know, personal note, one, one of the first seriously ill patients that I, that I interacted with in my earlier days at Normal was a woman named Cheryl Miller. She was a multiple sclerosis patient from New Jersey. Her and her husband, Jim Miller, uh, became tireless advocates for medical marijuana. They actually got themselves arrested uh, by you know, blocking the door to then Congressman Bob Barr's office in D.C. and eating a marijuana brownie. Um, <laughs> you know, to, you know, well, she was I mean, she was in a bed. Like she was in a wheelchair bed at that point. She was so, she was so ill. Um, and, uh, and and, you know, and, he, and and she ended up passing away shortly before this law was this law was passed. She never got to you know, see the benefits of her years of work. Um, and there are so many patients like Cheryl in New Jersey that benefit that, that, that can benefit from this this medicine that have not been able to access it, even though there's been a law in place for the last eight years. And I think that's a real tragedy. And so I'm really hopeful that under this new administration, those patients in the state who need it will actually be able to get access to it. Let's hold on one second. I, I'm guys, I'm not moving. I'm not touching the wires, so I, I don't know what's going on here. So we're at the, that part of the show that our fans have been waiting for, Chris. It's Puff Puff Pass. So um, <laughs> what we want you to do is tell us two things that you absolutely love about the industry that you really have been um, integral in helping to build and the one thing that you want to pass on. Sure. Um, all right. So two things I love about the industry. First, the, the people. Um, it's great people in the cannabis industry. Uh, you know, I've gotten to interact with some really awesome folks uh, you know, from all across the country. I mean, I'm really fortunate. I get to travel a lot. Um, it, you know, it's taxing. It's particularly taxing on my family. And I, you know, I owe my wife for like everything for putting up with the, for putting up with the sacrifice, you know, these sacrifices that, that we're making to to get this done. But I'm, through this process, I get to meet some really interesting and smart uh, people all across the United States, and 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 I get to see some really awesome places that I, you know that I probably would never have gotten to if it weren't for cannabis. So that that's been you know, that, that that's been great. Okay, Chris, and your second puff. So for my second puff here, I would actually go back to what we were talking about earlier, and that is. I love the fact that this industry is leading to the legalization of cannabis and the end of cannabis prohibition. You know, that's why I got involved in this in the first place. You know, I didn't, I didn't see this as something that I could you know, make millions of dollars doing, although if eventually I can, that'd be great. Um, but, you know, I, 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 you know I, I've dedicated my, my life and my career to ending prohibition, um, to ending the drug war, and we're doing that. Right. Like by going state to state and ending prohibition in each state and setting up these markets and showing showing the world that we can we can cultivate cannabis under you know, highly regulated conditions. We can produce all these really cool new products. Um, you know, the, the, the product side of things are so different now than they were just 10 years ago. Right? We didn't know what vape pens were back then. Um, and, uh, and and in doing so we are actually ending prohibition. And I think that's incredible. I don't think there's another industry out there that you could point to that is having such a profound effect on changing social policy um, as what we're doing in the cannabis industry. And your past? Uh, how hard this is. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think, you know, just you know, people tend to think that this is, you know, this is a license to print money and, uh, you know, and, 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 and this is, it's just, it's really, it's so easy. We're just going to grow a bunch of marijuana and sell it. And it's really, really hard, right? Everything takes so long. There's so many hurdles. 
um, that, uh, that, that, that it's, you know, it, I would love it if we, well, if, and when we get to the point where, you know, obtaining a license to open a marijuana business is, is, is you know, and, and then being able to run that business you know, has the same challenges as being able to obtain a liquor license and run a liquor store. Uh, and it's just not the case right now. Um, I, I was actually going to go with uh, the puns. That's because, yeah, but, but I figure in a segment called Puff Puff Pass. Yeah, but you're you're in the yeah. middle of a pun right now. So. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you did a Puff Puff Pass Pass. That's okay. Yes, you did. And you didn't, you didn't bogart that segment. So thank you. Awesome. Um, so thanks again to Chris Crane, co-founder and president of Forefront. Check them out at ForefrontVentures.com and on Twitter at Forefront Ventures. That's the number four front F-R-O-N-T Ventures. Um, thanks, as always, for joining us. And if you can press that little button there that says subscribe and, and go on to either iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this and rate us, um, hopefully you'll give us a good rating. Um, it really is helpful. It lets more people find us. The more people that find us, they can hear guys like Chris talking about what we have talked about and Chris we definitely want to have you back we didn't get to talk about social justice we really didn't there's so much that we didn't get to talk to you about I mean you are truly a, a, a wellspring of, of amazing insight into this industry um, you know as you our listeners um, continue to, to pay attention make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Green Rush Comms um, a special thanks as always to Nick Opich um, our associate producer and Brasco who is the game and is that damn good. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.